All right, let's pray and then we'll get started and understand why are we here and who we are. Father, I thank you for these dear souls that you've gathered. I thank you for this opportunity we have to come and that we would not be boasting but anything but in the cross of Christ. Though we understand who we are as a people, why do we do the things we do? Make it clear to us that we would cling to your word and cling to the cross and be willing to be thought of as fools by the world that does not know you. So, Father, let us not be distracted by me or any errors I may make, but always look to your word that your spirit would teach us and not just man. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. All right, Baptist, what does it matter? You know, anybody passing through Latimer County will see various kinds of churches, different labels on them. Uh, Methodist, Seventh-day Adventist, Roman Catholic, Presbyterian, Cowboy, Baptist, and it goes on and on and on. What's the significance of being a Baptist church, and why does Gowan Baptist matter in this grand sea of all these different names and labels that people put on their organizations? I will submit that there's four significant reasons that it matters that Gowan Baptist is a Baptist church. And these aren't merely denominational distinctives. Every group has those. Each of these has emerged as a spiritual truth that should mark any Christian church. And Baptists have long recognized the importance of being a people marked by the Word of God. We'll see that each of these four distinctives reflect significant truths about our Lord and about His people. First, we're going to take a little trip through history to find out where did the name Baptist come from. In the 1500s and 1600s, the Anabaptist label was widely used for all sorts of religious groups that did not submit to the state church in England and on the European continent. People who practiced believer's baptism were called Anabaptists because they didn't accept so-called infant baptism. And they, you know, you've got to be baptized as a believer. And so the state church said, well, you're, you're baptizing a second time. Anna means to do again, Baptist. You're rebaptizing. They, these people labeled Anabaptists, they believed in believer's baptism. They believed in a lot of other things. And there's, there's several distinctives that true churches hold to that we'll see Baptists, when they emerged from this chaos, clung to and identified themselves by such. The people that were labeled Anabaptists, and this could be the folks that turned out to be Mennonites, Quakers, Methodists, and Baptists, all sorts of different folks, they were labeled this way as a kind way of calling them heretics. The Church of England or the Roman Catholic Church on the continent labeled people heretics if they didn't submit to them. And Anabaptist was the label they chose. In England in particular, people who wanted to set themselves apart from the people who were called Anabaptist and were a threat to the nation, a threat to the state, they came up with declarations of who they were in which they declared themselves not to be Anabaptist, were falsely called Anabaptist. The people who wrote the first London Baptist Confession said, we who are falsely called Anabaptists, we believe this, describing, we don't believe these things that you say about all these other heretics. They protested they weren't Anabaptist. And it appears, after a time of protesting this, that in answer to the inevitable question, well, if you're not an Anabaptist, what are you? We're, we're Baptist. Just kind of fell out. 
And it was about 1609 that the name Baptist emerged in history as a group of people. The manner and meaning of baptism from the earliest times was a doctrine and practice that has divided the people who claim to be Christians. And we are called Baptists because we see the importance of practicing believers' baptism. Because that's the only baptism that anybody, even those that sprinkle babies, can find in Scripture. This alludes to a long-time description of Baptists as being people of the book. This is what we've long been called. We have almost always been a people who know the importance of clinging to the truths that God has revealed to us in Holy Writ. And to depart from His special revelation we call the Bible means we rely on our own wisdom. And of this we find no approval in God's Holy Scriptures. So there are some that hold to various views of successionism, which claims that Baptists have existed since the time of Jesus, often pointing to John the Baptist. Well, history doesn't bear this out, John the Baptist notwithstanding. You know, he didn't found a church. He was called John the Baptizer, because that's what he did, baptizing people unto repentance and faith in the Lamb of God who takes away sin. What is true is that we find in Scripture and in history credible accounts of people who hold to certain distinctive doctrines that... Like I said before, when Baptists emerged from the chaos of what is known as the Reformation, there we were, holding to these things, which we're going to describe. And in 1609, the name Baptist started to be carried about by people to identify themselves. Those were our people 500 years ago. We see historical records of Christians holding to these doctrines. We see brothers and Christian, Christian sisters Brothers and sisters, struggling against the spirit of the age to be true to the Scriptures, to be people of the book. So these four doctrinal teachings that Baptists have historically hold to are short and quick. Some split them up into as many as eight points, but I've summed it up into four because I'm simple-minded and I can manage four points better than I can manage eight. Most of us know we're Baptists because we baptize believers, but... I've, my experience tells me most Baptists really don't understand the significance even of baptism. We'll take a look at that one first. That's the first distinctive about what it means to be a Baptist. It's the best known distinctive because it's in our name. Books have been written about each one of these points. I'm not going to cover each point in depth. We can get into the books afterwards if you want to. So we'll look at baptism and we'll look at three aspects of it which demonstrate why people have misunderstood and thought about it. The first one is mode or means or method. How is baptism administered? It ought not to be contested. The only mode of baptism found in Scripture is immersion. You can look at Pado-Baptist from all of recorded history and from John Calvin, B.B. Uh, Warfield, R.C. Sproul, you can't find a single one who can point to any New Testament passage that even gives a hint of sprinkling babies. In fact, they've all written that if you just follow the Scriptures, you only see immersion of believers. As we see, beginning with the baptism of our Lord Jesus, the manner is immersion. He was dunked in the River Jordan. There's not an exception to this in all of Scripture, and there's many examples of it. If you consider the eunuch in the chariot going across the desert, and God sends Philip to him, right? And he sits up in that chariot, and he's a eunuch 
of high standing. He's a, he's a rich, he represents a rich ruler. And here he is, he no doubt, traveling across the desert, he's got a cup of water, right? In case he should grow thirsty. And what does he say? How can I understand these scriptures unless you explain it to me? And Philip opens his understanding. God gives him belief in Christ. And the eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? Here's water. Off they get, go into the river, into the water, the scripture says, and he came out of it, and God takes Philip yonder. Right? Immersion. If sprinkling was the mode, that cup of water in the chariot, he could have just gone and sprinkled him and be done with it. We don't find that in scripture. The very word baptism comes from a Greek word that was primarily used to describe a ship that has been sunk. You don't, ship, you don't sink big ships by sprinkling water on them. We are people of the book. We dunk people underwater. That's the mode. Secondly, who are the candidates for baptism? People fight over this too. Who is eligible to be baptized? Nearly everyone, including those who sprinkle babies, agrees that believers are to be baptized. But since babies can't be examined to see if they believe, all sorts of alternatives are presented by those who sprinkle infants. Advocates of baby sprinkling read between the lines of Scripture and imagine babies being baptized in a few passages. There's no mention of small children being baptized in the Word of God. Sprinkling babies began... And people argue about when it began around the third century as a superstition when babies who were thought to be near death would be baptized. And they quickly discerned that it wasn't good to submerge a sick infant underwater. And so they began pouring water and then later on sprinkling water. And then they decided, as they got more superstitious about their religion, that if it's good enough for sick babies, it's good enough for all babies. The superstition behind this is that baptism is meritorious, that it means something in God's sight as to reconcile you to Him. Baptists don't see baptism as that. We see it as an act of obedience to having been raised from the dead. Children, far from being baptized in Scripture, are held up as word pictures of people of the kingdom of God. People that don't have any guile. They're not jaded. They're not cynical. They have simple faith in God the Father like a small child has in his earthly father. You guys know when your kids were little, they three, four-year-old boys in particular want to jump off the top bunk knowing dad's going to catch them. There's no doubt in their mind, but dad's going to catch them. That's what Jesus is communicating with using these little children's pictures to people. This doesn't say, as our Presbyterian brothers do, that we should consider the children of Christian parents as covenant children. What covenant are they in? Not the covenant of grace. Because you have faith in Christ to be in that covenant. If you're not born of God, you're not in that covenant. It's far more straightforward and far more biblical to require the individual wanting to be baptized to make a credible profession of faith, of his belief in Christ, to be examined by his parents and the pastor to make sure that this child understands his sin and how it can be paid for. 
and that he has faith in Christ. Not just that he understands religious conversation. It's far more straightforward to see if there's evidence of a new creature. Another man's faith will not serve on Judgment Day when we each stand before the Lord. And so when the Roman Catholic Church says we have faith of the super saints stored up in a, in a faith bank that we dispense on these babies when we sprinkle them, God help them. The Bible knows nothing of any of that. Every man stands on his own. It's our job as Christians, it's our job as a local assembly that we don't embrace somebody as a member unless we see evidence that they're a new creature. And one of the evidences is that they embrace, they run to obeying Christ and being immersed in baptism. And this brings us to the significance of what does baptism mean. And this gets into the reason we cannot compromise on the first two points. The main reason baptism is given in Scripture is to point to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said of his baptism in Luke 12, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And by this, Jesus was not referring to John's baptism of him in the Jordan River. That was already done. And how, how great distress was that in him being dunked under the water? Not much. That baptism in the Jordan was a type and a shadow of the spiritual truth of what Jesus speaks about in Luke 12. The Lord's true baptism is when he was punished for our sins on the tree. No mortal man can stand where Jesus stood that day, cursed by God for the sins of others. He laid down his life for us, knowing that he would pick it up again because he had no sin. That's what earned him the right to pick his life up again. When we baptize believers, we read in the Scripture that we were baptized therefore with Him with baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This gives us a picture of what has been done to us. It shows something that an infant can't do. We love our babies. My wife and I love our six-week-old granddaughter. We don't think that she's a believer. Right? Little babies need the gospel. We pray that her parents preach the gospel to her, pray for her, model Christ, walk in the newness of life, and that God would have mercy on Emery's life and save her one day. But it's nothing we can do. We be faithful with the message. Some plant, some water, God alone gives the increase. This is why baptism is significant and why we cannot compromise on it. The Lord's death, the Lord's resurrection are keystones to our faith. And that's why baptism is a distinctive we hold to. Secondly is the nature of the local church. There are three forms of a government given by God to, to man. The family, which teaches children the things of God and is the smallest government of all. The civil government which is to reward those who do good and punish evildoers, and it handles disputes involving citizens of the world. And in third, we have the church, which is called the biller and the buttress of truth. It represents the kingdom of God in this age, and it handles disputes among the saints. It is here that families gather, individuals gather, for worship, for instruction, for prayer, and for fellowship. It is here primarily that God meets with His people. 
having given the church shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the status of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness of of deceitful schemes. Paul writes that in Ephesians 4 about the nature of the church. The church, both in its local form and universal form, represents the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul expounds on this in Ephesians 5, and, and it gets beyond his mortal ability, even as an apostle, to describe. He just runs out of words to describe the, the symbolism of marriage as it relates to Christ and the church. So with that background, we'll take a look at four key aspects of the local church. I won't talk about the church universal because it doesn't have a denominational label or a doctrinal label, and it doesn't have any chaff growing up with the wheat. It is the redeemed of Christ in all of the ages. We're just going to talk about the local church. This again, uh, the the first of these four is called local autonomy. This is another area in which the vast majority of churches disagree with us. We see in Scripture that local churches in various towns had relationships with other local churches, but they weren't subject to men in other churches outside their local church. The Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 shows how the apostles handled, handled a contentious issue that affected many of the new churches. There were Judaizers that said you had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be a Christian. And the apostles, who had an office that pastors today do not, right? the apostles they did not simply order that that church full of Jews to shut up and fly right. They dealt with this matter gently as one brother to another. And they they heard the matter, and they they considered a response, and they sent a letter. It was a one-time event, handled gently, with the desire that Christians stand before God with a clean conscience. Christians as individuals and churches as the local entity, stand before God with a clean conscience. The office of apostle does not continue, and we see nothing in the Word of God about popes and presbyteries and other denominational hierarchies that populate the professing Christian world and hold local churches under the thumb of elevated religious offices. The local church was founded by Jesus. These other religious institutions were dreamed up by men. Each church stands before the Lord. Her pastors will give an account to God for how they have served Him and the people He has gathered at each church. This is why no man-made group can insert itself as Lord over the local church. Each pastor answers to Christ for his service and and needs the love and support of the people that God has gathered here. We don't need the blessing of some guy in a black robe in another city far away. Secondly is the offices of the local church. The scriptures describe two offices, and by this I mean positions with defined responsibilities, not offices like some might imagine them. You have one office called the elder, overseer, or pastor, three words used to describe him, and the deacon. These are identified and qualified in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The men who serve in these offices are co-laborers with distinctly different roles within the church. The qualifications for service in these offices are identical with one exception, that the elder pastor 
must be able and willing to teach the Word of God. Acts chapter 6 gives the best insight as to the function of these offices. The apostles, who were the forerunner of the church pastors, were to devote themselves to prayer and the preaching of the Word. The deacons were to tend to the physical needs of that dynamic and diverse body of the church as it was growing explosively right after Pentecost. As the church matured, the scripture shows us that the elders, pastors, had oversight on all the church did, and the deacons provided much more service than simply waiting tables, which is what the word connotes in the Greek context. Indeed, there are spiritual issues behind every temporal issue that a deacon might be called to help with. So you can't simply relegate a deacon to manage deeds and the pastor worry about creeds, as some people sum it up. Both have spiritual health of the body at mind, and both need spiritually mature men who can discern truth from error and help people see the spiritual matter behind why you can't manage your money. right? Because behind the root of every sin that manifests itself in a problem here, there's a theological problem that the deacon has to be equipped to handle. The, who can serve as a deacon in a church is a hotly contested issue. And this issue exists because the use of the Greek and the English words refer both to one who serves in a local church in this capacity as well as those who simply are known for being servants to the body of Christ. Deacons are not required to be spiritual guides, but they are required to be trustworthy and of moral character so that they can deal with everything that has spiritual undertones. The, word, the Greek word means servant, and it is oftentimes used in Scripture referring to those who simply serve the body, and this is why you see women called deacons in the, in the Scriptures, because of the way they serve people, not because they're holding the office. The health of the church depends on deacons functioning well, which requires the cooperation of the people and the pastors. One of the biggest things that keeps deacons from doing their job well in churches is people that are hurting being too prideful to ask for help. Years ago, I bought my wife a book entitled Men Read Newspapers, Not Minds. She said she knew what was in it and decided not to read it. People in the church that are hurting need to have the, the type of close fellowship with the people in the church where they can go to one another and say, Brother, my house burnt down and I didn't have insurance and we lost everything and we, we hurt and we, we have needs. If they can't say that, there's pride at work. We learned about sinful pride this morning in Sunday school. We all ought to be humble with one another. Those who are rich in this present age be willing to help. And God calls different people together in a local church so we can benefit one another. Deacons are essential and that working right. The second office is that of, of the elder or pastor. This can only be filled by a qualified man. There's no possible way that you can argue from Scripture that a woman can serve as a pastor. Yet many churches do. This is always, yeah, always, not nearly always, this is always the first step to total apostasy for a local church. In our English Bibles, we see the words elder, presbyter, overseer, bishop, shepherd, and pastor. Each pair of words comes from one Greek word. So there's three Greek words that show up in six English words. They are used interchangeably, and they all re refer to the single office of the church. 
man has developed these unbiblical structures imagining that bishop is more honorable and must carry more responsibility than these other names that they see in Scripture. But these words are not titles by which the men who serve are to be called, but they are descriptions of the service they provide in the church. The terms elder and presbyter refers to a man's experience in the word and in the church. Overseer and bishop convey the act of a spiritual guardian or protector. You know, part of the job of a pastor of a local church is to rebuke false teaching. People that come into the local church and bring heresies, they need to be identified, marked, and if they don't repent, thrown out. That's part of guarding the flock. So you have to be studied in the Word to serve in this office. The, the words pastor and shepherd re- refer to the spiritual care and feeding of God's flock. So you have protecting, keep the bad guys out, keep them in submission. And you have spiritual care and shepherding. We all have theological blind spots. None of us has perfect theology. We're going to have questions. We're going to have doubts. We're going to have moments where Thomas looks like a great stalwart of the faith when he wants to see the scars. You know, we got bigger doubts than Thomas does. It's the pastor's job. It's the, to shepherd. That, that word pastor means to shepherd. It's an act of caring for people and leading them back to faith in Christ according to the Scriptures. When people don't handle these two offices right, they show that they don't care for the Word of God, but they like the pragmatic aspect of their own wisdom. And a lot of churches have junior deacons and senior deacons and junior pastors and senior pastors, and the church doesn't know anything about a senior pastor. The model we see in the New Testament is for two pastors in a local church that don't have any rank. Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, and we see this plural use of the word pastors, elders, described in all the New Testament churches. Why? Because one man is not an authority to himself. He likes to be, but it's a dangerous position. And if a church only has one elder, one pastor, it's not in sin, but it's something to be on guard about. Because one man can get full of himself standing up here. And that should not be, brothers and sisters. And what I like and what I love, rather, about a small church is there's less likelihood of that happening. Big churches tend to create barriers between the man who preaches and the people he's supposed to serve. Okay, thirdly, uh, the third aspect of a local church is membership. So a local church answers to God, has two offices, has standards for membership. And this is important for two reasons. It reminds the members that we are not of the world. We are aliens and sojourners. It tells the world we don't belong to them, but we serve a different king. Membership is, for most churches, closely related to baptism. For the vast majority of churches which sprinkle babies and call that baptism, you know, this is why Baptists have been persecuted, killed, and run out of countries is because we've not recognized sprinkling babies as baptism, right? People who sprinkle babies and call that baptism, they say that that means that the infant is declared a covenant child. The Mosaic Covenant, there's no safety on Mount Sinai. That's justice. I want mercy. I want a different covenant. Martin Luther said it right when he said, I serve Jesus, not Moses. The Bible doesn't talk directly about church membership. 
It doesn't have a list of things. But we learn about church membership by seeing it and practicing the scripture. The unrepentant sinner is thrown out of the local church. You see that in several places. The sinning elder is rebuked in front of the whole church. And the Lord's Supper is taken together as a church. None of these make sense if you don't have some membership. None of these make sense if little bitty kids and unregenerate people are considered members. They can't judge accusations, this brother has sinned, in light of Scripture. They can't examine themselves to see if they be in the faith, which we're all commanded to do before we take the Lord's Supper. Everything we do see in the Word of God around local church membership tells us that it does have a relationship with baptism. Both require a credible profession of faith in Christ and a willingness to walk in obedience to Him. So we do what we can to ensure that every member that is welcomed into a Baptist church is, as best we can tell, not being omniscient ourselves, a born-again believer in Christ. And submission to the commands to be baptized is an evidence of that faith. So that's why membership is important, and we ought not to be neglectful in thinking about it when somebody wants to join our church. Are they in Christ? Are they willing to walk in obedience to Him? Are they willing to be thought of as a fool to the world, if that's what it means, to be baptized in your 30s when you were sprinkled as a baby? These are conversations we need to have with people. Okay, the fourth thing is, how does the church relate to the civil government? In the apostolic record of the Bible, each local church existed as an outpost for Christians in a hostile world. In first century Rome, Christianity was illegal because Christianity, among all the pagan religions, denied that Caesar was God. Until Constantine legalized Christianity, governments either persecuted Christian churches or they tolerated them if they didn't make too much trouble. A church that's not making too much trouble, you read about in Revelation, they're not very highly commended by God because they're not known as being faithful with their first love. When infant baptism was settled upon, initially for the superstitious reasons I mentioned earlier, it was quickly seen by these people who liked a legalized church. When Constantine legalized Christianity, the regional bishops that people had grown up at that time, they got in cahoots with him, and you, you saw the early wedding of the church in the state in 325, roughly, A.D., and they said, they quickly saw rather that, hey, you know, if we sprinkle babies, we baptize babies, make a record of that, then we know how many people live in this geography so we can know how much tax revenue we should get from them. And they found it an easy way to control the populace in each given geographic region. This is why infant baptism is so tightly held to by state churches. Even today in the state of Scotland, the state church allocates geographical regions to each local church. If you live there, that's where you go to church. Very much like the way our government schools run secondary schools and primary schools in our country. Right? If you live here, you go to school there. This is an issue that shows one reason why the state churches hated the Anabaptists. These so-called radical reformers had one thing in common. They believed the local church answered to Christ directly and that polluting the church with politics works against God's people. 
Baptists developed this topic a little bit and embraced a healthy separation of church and state, a doctrine that recognizes the different spheres of responsibility that God has given to each and recognize that governments need counsel from churches and from godly people so that they can fulfill their role. How else will a pagan government know what is good and what is evil in the sight of God? They are God's minister. right? How are they going to figure that out if we don't tell them? And contrary to many Anabaptists who thought it was sinful for Christians to serve in government offices, Baptists think such a service is one way God's church can influence civil governments to be better ministers, according to Romans 13. So it's a little bit more, it requires a little bit more thoughtful application than to be government bad, don't get involved. No, God founded government. They need godly counsel. How can I make them more effective and honorable in God's sight? That's the Baptist perspective. They don't run the church. The church informs them. So, that's the nature of the local church. That's the second thing. Third is a doctrine called liberty of conscience. In practice, liberty of conscience is a product of one's view of the nature of the local church. If the local church answers to none but Christ, then He alone rules the hearts of those in the church. If, however... The local church answers to a regional bishop, a pope, or a governor? That political religious hierarchy inevitably asserts itself and demands obedience. Here's how this doctrine worked out in the 1500s. Just as the Roman network of roads and the wide-scale influence of Greek language and culture were orchestrated by God to bring about the fullness of time for the Lord's first advent, all that stuff was pulled together In the fullness of time, Christ came. It wasn't by accident that the roads were developed, the language was developed, and all those cultural things were put into place. In the fullness of time. Something similar to that happened in the 1500s. He brought about the printing press and common language Bibles to a people who were awakening from the dark ages and beginning to see a great light. Men such as John Wycliffe and William Tyndall were used of God to bring His Word to the common people in their own tongues. Because for a millennium, the Roman Catholic Church, which ruled the, the temporal affairs of Europe, kept the Bibles in Latin because nobody could understand it but the priests who were taught Latin. And so the Bible communicated to them what the Pope decided the Bible should communicate. And these people that wanted to bring the, the Bible into German language and to English language, they were hated by the Roman Catholic Church. John, uh, John Wycliffe died, was buried, and then 150 years later, the Roman Catholic Church dug up his bones, burned them, and threw them in the river. They think that if you burn a man like that till he's dust, that there's no resurrection. It's a super... St- oh, that's not our topic. As time progressed... Puritans refused to submit to the Roman Catholic Church with regards to salvation. They believed in salvation by grace alone. The Roman Catholic Church believes that God infuses grace into you and, and makes it possible for you to do good works to merit salvation after a suitable time in purgatory. Because most of you just don't get it right while you're here on earth. Puritans were persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church, which had the power of the state in its hand. And so the Puritans fed to the fled to the colonies. 
Baptists who had fled from England, where the Anglican church had used the power of the state to persecute them for not sprinkling babies, they landed in the American colonies. And they were persecuted by the Puritans for not submitting to the Puritans' state church, which required babies be sprinkled and churches submit to the colonial government. Baptists believe that God awakens us to Him and calls us to Him and by His Spirit gives us understanding of the Scriptures, understanding of our sin, understanding of God's holiness. And we gather together as His called out people and we talk about what does it mean to be the people of God. And such conversations around the dinner table in New England in the 1640s got Baptist people arrested, hauled to court in Massachusetts, fined, flogged, and thrown in jail by the Puritans and their state church. This is what it means that each Christian be in part of the priesthood of believers. We each stand before God as individuals and our conscience can be bound by God alone. Martin Luther, as he did a lot of, said a lot of good things, just like all of us, said a lot of stupid things. But when he was before the Roman Catholic Church at the Diet of Worms, so-called, the Council at Worms, he said that he believed that what God had revealed in His Word was true. And unless somebody could show him from Scripture where he erred, he could not back down. This is the priesthood of believers. This is liberty of conscience. By God alone, my conscience is bound. I cannot deny Him who shed His blood for me. Christians have minds that can comprehend spiritual truths, but we're still affected by inherited sin and active sin, which keeps us from understanding Scripture perfectly. Hence, these tensions between Christians and the various views on secondary issues. Hence, the need for the local church. If we all were exactly alike, we have to be alike on the essentials. On the secondaries, if we all believe the same thing, we could all believe in error. We have to be willing to listen to one another humbly and search the Scriptures and see if it is so. This is what the Apostle Paul committed the Bereans for. He was an apostle. wasn't bashful about him being an apostle. He testifies to his office many times. And he says, these Bereans over here, they just didn't accept what words came out of my mouth. They searched the Scriptures to see if they were so. That's what we ought to be doing. Not go and ask in the magisterium. What does John 6 mean? We can discuss that amongst ourselves. We can look to the Scriptures. We can see what does the whole system of Scripture say about what it's talking about in John 16. You get into trouble when you take a text out of context and try to figure out what it means. You have to leave it in context and see what the author was talking about in that chapter, in that book, in the Gospels, in the New Testament, and in the whole canon of Scripture. Because Scripture will not contradict itself. And we get led down down heresy's path if we camp out on one little verse that we've isolated from the text. This brings me to my last point, the fourth distinction of Baptist. Baptism? I've got to look at my notes because I get lost here. The nature of the local church? Liberty of conscience? And then lastly, is the authority of Scriptures? Each of these points presented depends on the Bible being regarded as the express revelation from God. If we give passing assent to this, but our lives are no different from the unsaved, then we are either backslidden and need of repentance, or we are unsaved people ourselves. 
There's a very famous motivational speaker in Houston. We were talking about him this afternoon. And he stands up before tens of thousands of people every Sunday in a basketball arena that's been redecorated to look like a social club. And he, he picks up a Bible and he holds it up like, like it was a magic wand. And he recites a chant about himself. I am who it says I am. I have what it says I am. And blah, 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 blah. And then he sets it down. And then he gives a little motivational pep, pep speech. He never mentions the Bible. He doesn't preach from the Bible. He doesn't talk about sin. He doesn't talk about salvation. He just talks about how to have your best life now. The Scriptures have no authority in his life. And he's not a, he's not a minister of the Gospel. If we believe the Bible is the Word of God, then that ought to be the focus of when we gather to find out what did God say? How can we understand it? And how can we live in light of it? We will not come to an end of understanding the Scriptures while we yet walk in the flesh. Hence, we need to be a vital part of a church that is interested in hearing from God. We don't have a new revelation, but we have new understanding of what He has already said. Because we come to Him with humility and we sharpen one another. And we don't get puffed up and thinking, that, well, I know it all. I can't learn from you. I don't need to hear from my wife. I don't know about you all guys who have been married longer than me. But God has given me much wisdom from my wife over the years. I pity the fool who does not listen to his wife and learn about God from her if they both be Christians. We need godly counsel from one another. And we need humility to not think that we've got it all put together. Two observations about the authority of Scripture. The necessity of individual knowledge of the Scriptures. If we do not read and prayerfully study God's Word, we cannot properly exercise the precious gift of liberty of conscience, nor will we understand the spiritual significance of baptism, the nature of the local church, or God's love for us, or His wrath for the ungodly. As people of the book... We must cherish and study His Word so we can be faithful servants to His people and faithful witnesses to the lost and dying world. Secondly, we must live in light of eternity, not for things that will perish. Our natural tendency is to live for what our flesh craves. This is, as James teaches us, the cause of conflict and wars amongst us. We are to be focused on the heavenlies, mindful of who we are in Christ, and we are to live for His glory, not our own. If the Scriptures are all we need for life and godliness, which they claim to be, let our lives be marked by the One who authored them, and not live for ourselves, but for the glory of the One who gave Himself for us. These four points on why it matters to be Baptist. Having the name Baptist is not what's important. Being true to the Scriptures is. These are four areas where people who profess to be Christian depart from the Scriptures. We cannot compromise on these four areas if we want to be rightly called people of the book. Baptist. That's why it's important. We live as citizens of God's kingdom, traveling through a world that is at war with Him proclaiming His life-giving gospel and walking as children of the light. We should walk in love with one another in word and deed, spurring one another on to good works that were prepared for us before the foundation of the world. As people of the book, 
Our aim should be to bring glory to the name of our Lord and Savior and to do good to all the household of faith. And so that's my short lesson on what it means to be Baptist. And why does it matter that Gowan calls itself a Baptist church? Brothers and sisters, whether I serve here or not, whether we end up being here you know, next month or next year, I pray that Gowan Baptist be unashamed in, in being Baptist and being known in this world as Baptist. Not because it's a badge of honor, but because we carry forth the cross of Christ. And that's what matters to us as Baptist, as people of the book. Questions about that? Comments about that? Let me pray for us, and then I'll step down. Father, I do thank You for Your book, the revelation that You caused men to write as You carried carried them along by Your Spirit and using sinful men to preserve it through the dark ages and then using technology and using Your people to bring it to us in a language that we can understand. Lord, I thank You for those who have gone before that have fought and died over these things. Not simply because we're Baptists and this is what we do. Oh, Lord, we want to be faithful people. Faithful to You. We love our Baptist forefathers. Lord, let us learn from them and not simply follow them. Father, let us stand before You seeking by Your Spirit to be true to You that You would be glorified in our service. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know what comes next. Well, I don't know. Next Floyd got something. All right, Floyd. Next Floyd. <laughs> I'm not going to preach. I'm not going to preach. You only got five minutes, Floyd. <laughs>